0: Good morning. um, I'm glad to see you this morning. We are glad that you were here. Grab your Bibles and we will get into our study in just a moment. The book of Acts chapter 18. And we have been studying through the book of Acts now for about 10 or 11 weeks together. And we actually have two more weeks left in our study. And then we will actually tie up the book of Acts. We will not get to the end of it. So understand that at some point there will be Acts Part 2 at some point in the future, because it would take probably, uh, it would take numerous series to cover this amazing book. There's so much content in that for us as the church today. So today I want to talk to you about, because this is a great opportunity with you to talk about opportunity, is exactly what this is. So I want to share with you for a few moments about opportunity from the book of Acts chapter 18. And and what I've discovered over the years about opportunity, as we're going to kind of allow the scriptures to define it for us in a moment, is that it avails itself in many different forms. Sometimes it's not really recognizable as we see something in life, we realize, well, that's not really an opportunity because it's not recognizable to our human eye or that of our human mind. And and so, you know, you you wonder, well, what, what are you talking about, Mark? Because I got up this morning, I went out you know, to the car, reliable car, and I put the key in the ignition, I turned. The ign- it on and nothing, you know, there's nothing, you know, and the battery's dead. And so, are you saying that is opportunity? Well, yeah, it actually is. It's opportunity for you to actually grow in patience. Isn't that right? Yes. And it's opportunity for you later on today, as you maybe jumped it off, to actually leave today praying that God has somehow miraculously healed your car during the service. You're going to get home and then you go and buy a battery later on. But opportunity comes in all types of forms within our lives. But it doesn't always look like that at first. As we have, over the past few weeks, been studying through the journeys of Paul, we see amazing opportunities as God avails them to him, but they don't always appear to be opportunities. If we just... Take a little kind of glance back for a moment to chapter fifteen, and not going all the way back, but chapter fifteen, we see these things begin to happen in Paul's life through his journeys. We find in chapter fifteen where Paul and Barnabas they separate in their relationship for a short time in in the city of Antioch. They can't get along, and you say, Mark, well, how does that simply bring opportunity into Paul's life and Barnabas's life? Because after that, Paul teams up with a guy by the name of Silas, and oh we know those two names go together. We, we know the story somewhat. And, and so they head to a town called Dubri and that of Lystra, and there they meet a guy by the name of Timothy. Well, ah, wait a minute, there's a couple of books in the New Testament simply bearing the name of Timothy. So opportunity, yes. They try to go to Asia, but the Holy Spirit stops them and says no. Then they try to make another trip to a a city by the name of Bethina, but then the Holy Spirit says no. Is that a fail or is that an opportunity? It's an opportunity because they find they end up in a city by the name of Troas, and there Paul has a vision. It's called the Macedonian call. A few weeks we talked about that. Ago, we talked about that. And the Macedonian call is this vision that Paul has of a man in Macedonia calling him over to... Help us is what he says. We need your help in in Macedonia. And so what Paul does, he goes over to Macedonia and there he finds a group of ladies worshiping or praying by the river and he meets Lydia. And if you remember the story, maybe not, but if you were here, you remember the story that Lydia is what we know to be the first European convert. That so, we see this opportunity arising throughout Paul's journey, and sometimes they just don't look like that of opportunity. But through that opportunity, conversion of Lydia that we have the church today that we we know of and where we are right now at this moment it was the door to that of the reformation it was the door to the great awakening it was the door to the gospel being brought to you and I it's it's opportunity and then that in that city of Philippi what we find is Paul and Silas they're thrown in jail well how can that be opportunity because what Paul and Silas does is this they form a jail ministry right there first time right they form a jail ministry They have a worship service, they get the jail rocking, and all of a sudden what all the bars simply open, all the chains fall off, and the jailer, before he's about to take his own life, Paul says, Hey, don't do that. We're all still here. So the opportunity avails itself, and the jailer and his entire family come to Christ, and they are baptized, and the Philippian church is planted. Oh, it's the gateway to Europe. Paul and Silas they're escorted out of town after that by the police. Oh, how can that be opportunity in in their life? because they go to Thessalonica they preach the gospel yet there there's a riot and they have to leave how can that be opportunity they go to Berea and people there receive Christ but then the Jews form a mob and Paul and Silas have to leave and Paul goes to Athens and that is where, that is simply where uh, Matthew last week in chapter 17 took us. And there he gets to preach to the Epicureans and the Stoic philosophers, to the greatest minds of the, of the known world at that time. He gets to talk with them about Christ and share with them about Christ. It's an amazing opportunity. And I think sometimes we can go through our daily lives and we sort of see things as random. And and what I understand about sovereignty and that of providence in our lives is this, that all life flows to the hands of God, so it kind of eliminates the random of our lives. And so, there are opportunities that avail themselves in our lives daily that we don 't even see them as opportunities. We sort of see them as random acts, but yet God there are opportunities sometimes we say, "Well, opportunities always have to be really good things in my life you know they 're the things that make me comfortable and warm and fuzzy all over and make me feel really good No, sometimes opportunities come in the in in that Uh, frame of pain. Isn't that true? They come in those moments where there are struggles in our life, and we're going to talk about that in a few moments as we read this story together. So now we find Paul in chapter 18. He's going to Corinth. He's going to Corinth, and an opportunity opens for him in that city. Corinth is a city of a little over 200,000 people, just a little academics for a moment, made up of Greeks and, and uh, that of uh, Roman soldiers that are, are veteran Roman soldiers. It's, it's made up of government officials and a large number of Jews because they've been expelled from Rome by Claudius because he said, you guys are making way too much trouble, so i got to get you out, so this is where they go. And in this setting, God brings opportunity to Paul, but... What I love about this chapter is this, that it also sheds some light and an understanding for you and I in how to really recognize divine opportunity for our lives. It does. So chapter 18, verse 1, we read together. After this, Paul left Athens. He went to Corinth, and he found a, a Jew named Aquila, a, a native of Pontius. Recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome and he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked for they were tent makers by trade. Stop for a point. Just a moment. I think this is interesting to me anyway. It's interesting that what tent makers are, they're leather workers. And because most tents were made out of leather, so they're leather workers. And so that is Paul's trade. And that is also that of Aquila and Priscilla. That is their trades also. It's amazing how God puts people together, isn't it? And what I like about this and what I love about this, this is where this term tent maker missionaries comes from. And that is that today we have, especially in Muslim countries, we have people that are missionaries, but yet they go into those countries because of their profession and they work, but they create small small Bible studies and groups to spread the gospel. This is exactly where that concept comes from. Verse 4, And he reasoned in a synagogue every Sabbath, and he tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. And when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, evidently they must bring some support with them, because it says, And Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that Christ was Jesus. Verse 6, And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook off his garments and said to them, your blood is on your own heads. I am innocent. For now on I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together and believed in the Lord together with his entire family. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. So I have to start here. A couple of things to talk to you about this morning, and I have to start here, and it's this, divine opportunity, divine opportunity, because divine opportunity doesn't always look divine. It, It doesn't always look divine. So here's Paul. He's come to this city with all its perils and all of its promises, and Paul comes alone. He comes to Corinth at first. He's He's alone. Just as Paul, I think we see this coming to Corinthians alone, he reveals to you and I a very human side to that of divine opportunity that I think that we can connect with. He does. In order to understand that, Paul reflects back on that in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 1. He reflects back upon this passage that we just read from Acts chapter 18. And he talks to the Corinthian church and he recounts how he came to them. And this is what he says to them in 1 Corinthians 2 and 1. And I, when I came to you, brothers, is what he's talking about. He's referring back to Acts 18. Did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or with wisdom, he said. And, and when I, I stopped there for a moment, I thought about this. For some of you, that's, that's assuring. Yeah, Because maybe you struggle in with gospel conversations with people. So you're struggling with the words that you come up with. So that's great. And for some of you, it challenges your excuses. Because some of you say, well, I just don't know enough scripture. Or I just can't say things properly, you know. I can't put my mind and thoughts together to articulate them to tell people about Christ. And so here's Paul kind of saying, hey, understand this. You can relate to me and I can relate to you is what he's saying. Verse 2, for I decided to know nothing among you except Christ Jesus and him crucified. And look what he says in verse 3. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. What he's saying is this is about Jesus. This is not about me. And he goes on to say, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul, at the point of writing this in Corinthians, he's been there 18 months with them. He's seen great ministry, but he warns the believers not to base their faith on the wisdom of men, the words that he says, but you base your faith on the power of God. It is. And and he does this. He communicates this to the Corinthian church by opening his heart. Can I tell you something? The greatest effect that you'll ever have on anyone, whether you are discipling them, whether you are having a gospel conversation with them, and they're an unbeliever, the greatest way to ever communicate what Christ has done in your life and what God means to you is this, that you open your heart in transparency and honesty as to where you are and maybe the things that you struggle when you come to Christ and where you're struggling now and for them to understand that you are actually human. Because some people don't believe that Christians are humans. They don't. Just live with us for a while, right? Yes. Yes, and we are extremely human, as human as anybody else that walks this planet. And so what Paul does, he opens his heart. This is Paul. This is, this is absolutely this great evangelist, his powerful preacher, teacher, writer, theologian. This is Paul who opens his heart and says, Hey, when I came to you, in my heart was weakness and fear and trembling. I know this was an opportunity God opened for me to come to Corinth. I realized that, but yet I'm still Paul. And inside of me were those feelings. I I wrote this down in my notes this week. I said this Paul would make a terrible TV evangelist. He would. He would make an awful TV evangelist. Because if you go to the Corinthians writings, his letters to the Corinthian church, in 2 Corinthians, it's not on the screen, not in your notes. You can read it later. 2 Corinthians 10 and 10 tells us exactly how the Corinthian church sees Paul. And this is what it says, that his letters are weighty and strong, they say, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is of no account. Dude, you could not have a television program like that. You could not, right? No, you could have the nice suit, the slick back evangelist haircut, all those kinds of things. But you just could not do that if you couldn't actually present things, you know, in word and articulate them. Paul evidently struggles in that area. In fact, there are certain followings in Christian today that wouldn't even follow Paul. Paul could probably not pastor a mega church in in, in in, in, our, in our country, he probably could not. Because he says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and trembling. He said, but Mark, wait a minute. To capitalize on divine opportunities, then we have to be, first, we have to be very well educated and we have to be powerful. We have to have some flair to us and some swag to us, you know. We have to have all those kinds of things. Otherwise, how will God use us? And I think we're always asking the wrong question when it comes to how God uses us. Because I think the question we ask all the time is, what good can I do for Christ? When I think the actual question is this, what good can Christ do through me in my brokenness? Yes, that's the question. That what can Christ do through me in the broken state of my life? In all of my mess ups and hang ups and all of my habits and all the issues that I have. And we have issues, dear Lord, we all have issues. Isn't that right? Yes, we do. Yes, if you, you know, you greet the person next to you, you've said this to them before, you can look at them if you want, but man, that person next to you has issues. And you do too, absolutely. And so we all have those things. So how can the power of God work through me and work through you in the middle of the brokenness of our lives? I think that's the greatest question, that how does God's power flow through us in our weaknesses? Because it's never been about us, but it's always been about us drawing people to the cross, That's why Paul says when he comes to the Corinthian church, I decide decide to know nothing among you except Christ and Him crucified. That's it. Because these things in our lives are made, and I use the word perfect, but I, I believe that's how God works through our lives. And we're not perfect as individuals, but yet His will for our life and His work for our life is absolutely perfect, and His desires are perfect. That these things are made perfect in our weakness and not in our strengths. But yet, there's a paradox we find in Scripture, because Scripture says, "Hey, don't fear." Yeah, I'm not giving you the spirit of fear. There's a paradox there It says simply that we're told not to dismay for God is with us. Yet here's Paul. He comes to the Corinthian church. He has this great opportunity to have these gospel conversations, to preach and teach. Yet he says that he comes with this fear and trembling. Why? Because it's the opportunity that he faces for those gospel conversations. Yes, sometimes I'm afraid because I lack faith. And I say, Lord, help me in my unbelief. But what we know about Paul is this. He's... He, the fear and the trembling in his life is from the responsibility he understands in this opportunity that he has with god i've told you before that the most frightening moments of my life is this i'll count them one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen. 10, 11, 12, 13, 14. Those 14 steps are the most frightening moments of my life every week. They are. Yes. It's not when you come to me for counseling or when I visit you, maybe at the hospital or if you have surgery or, or one of those kinds of things. It, it, it's not even those moments. I feel the weight of those times. Yeah, absolutely for sure. But it's those moments. 14 steps from there sitting by my wonderful Reba and to, to right here that I realized the weight and the responsibility of the opportunity that I have to have gospel conversation with you on a Sunday morning or at other times. That's what it is. So I said, Lord, I read this chapter through so many times, chapter 18, what does it really say to me? What does this say to me? And so in, in my journal, I wrote three things that this chapter says to me. And I want to share them with you this morning. And the first is this, divine opportunity may take us to places that are challenging within our lives. This is the practical outworking of this journey. It takes us to places that are challenged within our life because what I have come to understand, the growth in my life, okay, the growth in my life is not always just about the destination. It's not always just about getting to Corinth, but yet the growth in my life is really about the the distance between where I'm starting and the time that I get to Corinth. It's about the journey journey of my life. If you look at Paul's life, it's been challenging. All these things that that simply of all these places he finds himself at. When he finds himself in Athens, he's speaking to some of the greatest minds in the known world that day That had to be challenged. When he finds himself in Berea and they accept the gospel, yet the, the Jews riot and he has to leave town. When he finds himself in Thessalonica, that there is a mob that comes after him. When he finds himself in Philippi, there he finds himself in jail. In Macedonia, he takes two wrong turns, or what appears to be two wrong turns, to get there. And God finally gets him there through a vision. He breaks up with barnabas he's stoned in lystra and that means stoned by being rocks okay understand that right and he's stoned in lystra they think he's dead but he gets up and he goes and he preaches the gospel that's amazing it's not about perfection but it's about progress in my life it's the journey an opportunity will take me to places that seem to be uncomfortable at times the second thing i wrote is this that god often sends others to walk out this journey with us this, is, this text that we just read is community at its finest. It really is. Paul goes to Corinth alone. Who does, what does God do? God sets him up with these two Jews, Aquila and Priscilla. That's amazing. They've been kicked out of Rome with most of the other Jews, especially the Christian Jews, because they're causing too much trouble. Claudius says, out, I'm done with you. So they find themselves in Corinth. Is it by chance that they're there? No, because God is sovereign. He knows, and He's sending Look what he's doing. He's sending Paul to Corinth because he already has Priscilla and Aquila waiting for him. And not only that, but they have the same type, they're the same type of craftsmen. They they do the same kind of work. They're both tent makers. They're all three tent makers. I think this is wonderful. Oh, that's just luck. No, there is no such thing as luck. Understand that. Luck is some evil thought Really, borderlines on witchcraft, if you think about it, it really does. Mark, I, send me an email, fine, com. I'll gladly discuss that with you, okay? Don't tell me good luck on something, you know? I had someone said to me on a Sunday morning, good luck with your sermon. this morning." I said, what did you say? Really? Good luck. If I'm depending on luck, that means I'm depending on myself. And we're all in trouble. Listen, if I'm depending on myself... You don't need to be here. You need to find another church to go to, really. Absolutely, that's the truth. Because I, I don't have the answers. I'm struggling for the answers myself for my own life. And what God does is this. He arranged, this is about community. Because what is the beauty of the book of Acts and the beauty of chapter 18 is this. Paul experiences opportunity in the middle of community. That's beautiful. Yes. Can I tell you something? This room is full of opportunity. Did you know that? Yes, it's full of opportunity. Oh, what do you mean? You're talking about the building? No, I'm not talking about the building. This building could be gone tomorrow, and that doesn't affect the church whatsoever. Understand that. Opportunity came walking in this room on two legs. That's right. It did. Yes. It's all of you. You came walking in on two legs. That's opportunity. You sit on your seat of opportunity. That's where you are right now. And in a, mo- and in a few minutes, uh, I won't say a few minutes, but later on, okay, you'll walk out of here as opportunity. You'll go to lunch and you'll be surrounded by opportunity. You'll have opportunity before you ever leave this parking lot. That's what it's about, that God places in community for opportunity. And you are responsible for one another. Oh, we're going to see that played out in a moment. I love this text. It is awesome. The third thing is this. Divine opportunity may require us to make difficult decisions. What does Paul do? Man, every, every place he goes, what do the Jews do? Well, some accept him. Yes, we know the leader of the temple in Corinth accepts him. But yet he's been to Thessalonica and Berea. What do they do? They riot, man. They riot. They run him out of town. In fact, at some point the disciples they have to sneak him out of town, you know, because there's a mob coming after him. So here's what he does when he comes to Corinth. He shakes out his robes. He, it's this. It's this sort of um, this physical symbol of kind of moving on is is what he does. He wants the Jews to understand the grace that Christ has simply shown them, but he also wants them to understand the judgment that will fall upon them if they do not accept Christ as the Messiah. So he departs from the Jews for a very short time to focus on the Gentiles. Why? Because God has softened and opened the hearts of the Gentiles. And there are times in our life, and take this under, just take this, you know, with an open heart and an open mind, that there are times in life that you may have to step away from some people. Now, that doesn't mean that you get a new husband today, okay? That's not what that means, right? No, so don't take that to that degree. That's not what Mark is saying, so just calm down, okay? You know, somebody's got to, like this elbow in a rib. I-, I told you, I told you God would speak to me. Today. No, that's not what this is about, no. But there are times when you have to step away from those that just want to absorb all of the life from you. And they desire just your attention. But yet they don't want to simply hear the things that God may speak through you for them. So you have to use wisdom for the good of the gospel. Now you get nervous, aren't you? Because you wonder who I'm talking about, right? Yes, no, no, you know. You know exactly what this is. Yes, those that are continually bombarding you with negativism to the part where when you leave their company, you feel like you're carrying the weight of the world on you at every time. Can I tell you something? If anything, when we come together as believers, that my place is this, to help relieve some of the weight from your life. I may not can physically do that, but yet I can prayerfully do that and encourage you, and and I I can tell you that I am there for you, and I stand with you, but there may be some instances in your life where you have to love someone for a short time from a distance. Wow. You see, the Gentiles are open to the gospel. The Jews... All they want to do is form a mob and riot against the gospel. But let me tell you something about this, because don't don't discount the Jews yet, okay? Understand that. Don't discount them completely, ever, because God is working, and we're going to see in a little bit how Paul comes back to them. He has not forsaken them, but yet he's using wisdom for the good of the gospel. So let's continue reading. It's verse 9. And the Lord said to Paul, one night in a vision, do not be afraid, But go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. But when Galileo was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made an attack or united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Galeo said to the Jews... If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. Verse 15, but since it's a matter of question about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal, and they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and they beat him in front of the tribunal. But Galeo Pay no attention to any of this. The second thing that I want to share with you this morning the enemy of opportunity is fear, so become counterintuitive. You say, Mark, that's strange. Yeah, I know, but exactly what Paul does here. The enemy of opportunity is fear, so become counterintuitive. Now, I have to give you, I have to take a moment for clarification. So hang on for a minute. And this moment of clarification is that what are we talking about about opportunity here? Maybe that's what you need to understand. Because some of you, I know kind of where your mind is going. And you're saying, oh, Mark, you must be talking about, <clears throat> excuse me, spiritual opportunity. And because we know that you're not talking about non-spiritual opportunities like my vocation. Because then, then you know, this is church and you have to talk about the spiritual opportunities of my life. Can I, can I say something to you with great love? And it's this. You can't. You cannot live your life compartmentalized. Understand this. You cannot. It's impossible for you to separate your spiritual life from your vocational life, your relational life, your professional life, your educational life, because your spiritual health flavors everything about you. Everything about you. And you cannot divide those things up. I've, I've talked to, to people in business who have said to me, well, I conduct my business a certain way, You know, like this, because that's how you just do business. And you can't always do business like the Bible would tell you to do, because you'll go broke if you do that. So I, you know, so I keep that separate from my church life. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, that's not possible. That is absolutely impossible. It's like you are two people. You step in and out of those two individuals all the time. And that's not possible because your spiritual life flavors everything about you. Understand that. So I'm talking about spiritual opportunity and whatever you call it, non-spiritual opportunity. That you take this and lay it over your life as an entirety. And God says to Paul, don't be afraid. God is aware of where he is, not just geographically, but God is aware of where he is in his own heart. And he says to Paul, Paul, speak. Don't be silent. Even when silence seems to be the best idea, that's the counterintuitive part about all of this. Keep on speaking because I'm with you. And on top of this, he says, because I have many people in the city of Corinth. Do you know what Paul, you know what God is talking about here? It's interesting. He's not talking about people that have already become believers. No. He's talking in a very sovereign and a very providential way. Whether you call it foreknowledge or whether you call it predestination. Boy, we could talk a while on that, could we not? Absolutely, but we won't, okay? But yet, whatever you want to call it, God already knows the number of people that will simply be converted in Corinth. He knows every person. If He knows the hair on our heads, if He knows the number of grains of sand in every sea and the amount of water in every ocean, then He knows the number of people at Corinth that will be converted he knows that that's what he's saying he's saying Paul I've already worked on their hearts You don't have to be afraid. They're telling you, or you're thinking, well, this is a real good time to kind of lay back, be real cool, kind of go all stealthy, you know, with my Christianity and the gospel, kind of be like this ninja gospel kind of guy, you know, that I kind of hit and run every once in a while and kind of pull back and hide. And he says, no, it's time for you to speak, even though it seems like it would be a better opportunity to be silent. It's time for you to speak because I have put all this together because I am God and I'm in control. You're not. That's so what he's saying? Well, man, I got this person at work, you know, and 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 I know they're not following Christ and they're struggling in in their relationships and and I just I just want to I just want to say something to them about God. I, I want to share with them that Christ is their hope in their life. But I'm 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 praying about it, really. I'm praying about that. Yes. That's like sort of me walking up to you, you know, and, and you, you've just walked across the street to Walmart after service and you got hit by a bus, right? And, and you're laying out there in the middle of the road and I walk up to you and you say, help me. And, you, and I look at you and I say, I don't know, let me pray about it for a moment. Okay. Let me, let me, let me really seek God as to, whether I'm to help you or not. That's, that's kind of how much sense that has. Listen, if sometimes you don't know what to say. Just say something. Just say something. Yes. Hey, man, Jesus loves you, and he understands exactly where you are. Oh, I hope that was the wrong words. No, 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 just say something at times, because here is Paul, and the best thing for Paul to do because of the track record of all the cities he's been in already is keep your mouth closed. But what does Paul do? He follows the direction of Christ, and he begins to speak. Courage is always counterintuitive. It is. Lord, you know, it it might be good if I just kind of lay low in Corinth, and God says, absolutely not, begin to speak, because I have always, already set up those that are going to hear the word of God and they're going to respond to you. I already know that. If you look at the Bible, the Bible is full of counterintuitiveness. It is. Jesus says this in Luke chapter 9, verse 24. For whoever would save his life will lose it. That's, that's counterintuitive, absolutely. And whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. And, and I could go on, man. I could, make the, I could simply give you this entire list of things. Things like the first shall be last, and he who exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. The greatest among you will be the servant of all. Love your enemies. No, I want to beat them no yeah no love your enemies pray for those that persecute you i don't want to pray for people that treat me wrong no jesus was absolutely counterintuitive and it drove the leaders of that time the religious leaders absolutely nuts it did because it couldn't put him in a box oh he's going to react like this you know Here's, here's what he's going to do yeah yeah let's go arrest him in the garden right yes and what does Jesus do? Jesus walks up to them and says, Hey, who are you guys looking for? <laughs> I always think that's kind of funny, isn't it? Yes. Who are you guys looking for? You know? And, and then the, the, the scripture says that they fall back to the ground, you know, because of the power of God through him as Christ. And, and then again, he says, Who are you guys looking for? G- Jesus of Nazareth. I'm the guy. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, th- that's that's exactly right. It's it's a counterintuitive thing about God. Courage is absolutely counterintuitive because at that moment it would have been very very seemingly humanly wise for Paul to keep his mouth closed for a while. But God says, "Speak," because I'm in control. I'm in control. What I've learned about this is we kind of get down to the last verses. We're going to read in a moment. That they're, they're testing points that often accompany these opportunities in our lives. And there are moments when we say, God, is this really you, Lord? Lord, I just need to maybe pray about this for a little while longer. I need to pray about if you really want me to have a gospel conversation with someone. I, I really need to do that. Yes. C.S. Lewis, who, I, you know, I love to quote him and we all do too. Everybody does. Courage is not just one of the virtues, he says, but the form of every virtue at the testing point. We just came through the resurrection season, Holy Week, and man, we had a great time celebrating our resurrection resurrected Lord. It was just amazing, so powerful. It's my favorite time of year, even great even to me greater than that of Advent, but it's such a powerful time. And I go back to that Sunday morning on Palm Sunday when we talked about that engagement between Pilate and Jesus. And and I thought about this as I was putting together this teaching this morning. And, and I thought about this engagement between Pilate and Jesus. And remember, they bring Jesus to Pilate, and 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 so he begins to ask the those of the of the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders. You know, as they stood outside the court, they wanted to defile themselves by coming into to Pilate's court, and they're yelling through the fence at him what everything that Jesus has done. And he struggles to find where he has broken any law. It's not that Pilate ever had a soft spot for Jesus or Jews because he detested Jews. But it was a matter of law and logic to him. We talked about that. And so Pilate asked Jesus four questions. The last question being, the mo- I think, the one that's most renowned. That is, what is truth? He asking it because he's investigating. And what we find is this about Pilate. That Pilate was merciful in his own way now. Understand this. Pilate was merciful to Christ until mercy became risky. And when mercy became risky for Pilate, what does Pilate do? He washes his hands. He said, this is no longer my responsibility. Now hang with me for a moment. In contrast to that, you have Jesus a few days before his arrest in the garden. He meets with his disciples over a meal, over a Passover meal. During the meal, he has these pointed conversations with them. He reveals to them that, that he will be betrayed. He reveals to them that he will be denied. And then Jesus, I think, does the most courageous and the most counterintuitive thing that could ever be done in the very shadow of his own crucifixion, that he sits, he stands up from the table or he sits up off the floor. He drops his robe. He girds himself with a towel, and he begins to work himself around the room with his disciples, and he begins to wash their feet, even the one that would deny him. Pilate says, hey, this is not my responsibility. His blood's on you. Jesus says to his disciples that day, you are my responsibility. Even though when I ask you to pray, you fall asleep. Even, even when I'm arrested, you run and hide. Even when I'm on a mock trial that you deny that you've ever known me, you go to the point of even cursing, saying that you do not know me. But you're my responsibility. Paul washes his hands, Jesus washes their feet. What takes the most courage? Because you can't miss that moment. Because we are each other's responsibility. Anybody can say, this is not my responsibility. No, no, I'm I'm not going to open my mouth right now because this will get me in trouble, you know? I'm not going to say those words. I'm not going to have those gospel conversations. And so I wash my hands of that. But the courageous and counterintuitive thing that we find ourselves called to do is to simply wash feet when it can even be a hard time in our lives. The rest of this text bears this out. I, I could quit now, but I can't because the rest of the story is so powerful, okay? Can I read this to you? Verse 18, after this, Paul stayed many days longer and then they took the brothers and, and they took leave of the brothers and set t- t- sail to Syria with him, Priscilla and Aquila. And and, and, and Cynthia, at Cynthia, he had cut his hair for he was under a vow. And, and I don't know if you've ever wondered what that text means but it is thought by theologians that sometime around Macedonia that Paul stopped cutting his hair because it takes a Nazarite vow. And a Nazarite vow you find in Numbers chapter 6, and you can read that later. It's very much part of the story of, the, of Samson in the Old Testament also. But it's a separation unto God for obtaining, and you abstain from food and drink, and you abstain from a razor to touch your body. And what it means is he's leaning into the Lord for the success of the mission that God has called him to do. He's leaning into God for the success of that mission that God has called him to do. And so when he gets to Centrea, the scripture says he cuts his, cuts his hair for he was under a vow. Verse 19, and they came to Ephesus and they left him there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. Again, he did not walk away permanently from the Jews. You see he's back there. At God's time. And when they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I'll return to you if God wills. And he set sail so for Ephesus. And when he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went to Antioch. And after spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. And the last thing I have to say to you is this morning, and I couldn't leave this out. Divine opportunity will always be complemented by one, enablement, and two, completeness. At Cynthia, Paul cuts his hair, for he was under a vow, that no razor has touched his body sometime around since the time of Macedonia, that Paul ends that vow at this place in Cynthia. He recognizes, one, that God, God has simply completed the promise. God has made good on the promise that he spoke to him through these, through these visions. But secondly, and this is the part that I really want you to understand this morning, that God will always enable his servant. God will always enable his servant to complete the mission that God calls him to. God will never leave you hanging. God is committed to you to the end. That is what we read in Scripture. In Philippians 1, 3 through 3-6, you can read it later. We know that. But he, he, he who has begun a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Understand that. That God is committed to you till the end. God has placed in your heart the gospel message. And God has surrounded you with opportunities. God will not leave you hanging when you step out for the sake of the gospel. He will never leave you hanging. Never. I can't tell you how many weeks, and, and many of you, as as. Teachers or preachers, and Travis can appreciate this, uh, and others in this room, and Matthew and others, that there are many times throughout the week as you are putting together the scriptures, you begin to sit in the scriptures and you begin to read them and read them and read them over and over and over and over. and, And God gives you this myriad of ideas, pages and pages and pages. And of ideas that you write out and you say, Lord, how will this ever come together? How does this ever come together? How is there an ever a central idea to any of this? And I want to tell you something, that after 30 some years, God has never left me hanging. Never. And he will never leave you hanging when it comes to the gospel. Never. So let me read this to you, the last, of the, the last of the story, verse 24 through 28. And this is it. It says this. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the Scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in Scripture. I uh, being fervent in Spirit. Notice for a point, for a moment, before we move on, that the word Spirit is lowercase s, not uppercase. So it does not refer to the Holy Spirit the Spirit of God. It is actually apollos's spirit understand that it's him he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning jesus though he knew only the baptism of john he began to speak boldly in the synagogue but when priscilla and aquila heard him they took him aside that's community that's exactly what that is look at this for what it is that I can wash hands, I can wash my hands and I can say, hey, Apollos is not my responsibility. I see what he's doing, I hear what he's talking about. And he is teaching the scriptures correctly. But there's something missing in Apollos' ministry. And that is the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God in his life. That's what's missing. He's he's disseminating information But yet, he's missing the spirit behind that information. I can wash my hands and say, that's not my responsibility. Or I can wash feet and I can step into his life. And I can be courageous. And I can step and say, hey, you're my brother. So let's step aside. Let's go to coffee or lunch. And let me talk to you about something I see in your life. That's what that's about. And how many times... Do we walk past our brother or our sister and we see that they're self-destructing? We see they're struggling in life, we see that they're maybe they have sin in their life, they have something going on, and we simply decide to wash our hands and say, that's not my responsibility. Maybe it's a good time for me to just keep my mouth closed, pray about it, not say anything. I don't wanna, I don't want to get into the middle of their drama and all that kind of thing. Can I tell you? He, You're not absent of drama in your life, so don't fool yourself, okay? Understand, if you're sucking air today, you got drama going on, okay? But they step into the middle of Apollos' life. And here's what they did. And they explained to him the way of the Lord more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, here's what happens the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. Why? Because somebody had taken the opportunity, had taken the opportunity to wash feet instead of washing their hands and not taking responsibility. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he Powerfully, look at the words. He powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that Christ was Jesus. There's so much meaning here. Man, I could just preach on this. I hope you guys brought a lunch because I'm just fired up about this thing. And so this could go on. No, I'm just teasing. I'm, I'm, you know, it's it's done other than a couple more things. I think you can approach divine opportunities with the spirit of Apollos, and that is, I can do this. I have the knowledge. I have the education. I have the background. I have the expertise. I know the truth. It's not that he was teaching lies, he was teaching truth. But when we communicate truth apart from spirit, it's nothing more than information. Understand that. When we communicate truth apart from spirit, then it's just information. It's rules. It's the boxes. It's the checkoff list. But when we approach this with that of Jesus is enough, that, Lord, I'm weak and I'm fearful, that, God, I'm trembling, my words are not eloquent, God. God, I got John 3.16 down, baby. I got it down, Pat. I'm working on a few more, Lord, but give me, be patient with me. But I'm working on a few more. God, can you use me? And Jesus says, hey, get up from the table, drop your robe, put your towel around your waist, and let's wash some feet. That's what he says. Because it takes us back to Luke 24 where we started all of this. Where Jesus before his ascension said, but you shall be clothed with power from on high to be my witnesses. It takes us back to Acts chapter 1, verse 8, the bridge between that of the synoptic Gospels and that of the rest of the New Testament where he says to you and I, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. You see, Christianity is more than it's more than giving your life to Christ and then someday you get old, die, and go to heaven. It's more than that, okay? Understand that. And and you say, Well, Mark, that's ridiculous. So nobody thinks, oh, I want to tell you, yes, they do. I hear it all the time. I heard somebody say to me recently, Well, I just want to be good enough to just, just to make it to heaven someday. And I said, wait a minute, you're starting out behind already, okay? Understand that. You need to realize that because you'll never be good enough. What? Never. You're rotten to the core on the inside. Well, I never. Oh, no, you have. You always have all your life. You're born that way. It's not your faithfulness. It's His faithfulness that gets you there. It's His faithfulness. So Christianity is more than giving your life to Christ and someday dying, and go into heaven. It's the middle that makes the difference. It's the opportunities that happen in the middle of that of conversion and that of going to heaven that makes a difference. It's where the opportunities lie. It's where we live passionately for Him during that time of our life. It's where we're not blowing our, our days and our dollars on just ourselves. But we're giving our life for the glory of God, the good of others. We're leaning into divine opportunities. And that opportunity could be sitting around you this morning in front of you behind you beside you who you had coffee with today who you will run into after church hopefully it's just like a meeting and not like like a car accident or something like that you know but whatever opportunity and how it avails himself then then you use it for the gospel But life is about opportunities, and God has placed us in the middle for his glory. Would you bow your heads for a moment with me this morning, Father? Lord, we love you, and God, that's not what we're here to, to talk about or question. That's, that's not what this is about this morning, Father. But this is about how we see our walk and how we see our journey. And understanding that this journey that we're on today is truly more than just that of conversion and then at some point going to heaven. But it's about the middle, Lord. What are we doing with the middle of our lives? What are we doing with that that space between those two defining moments? How are we living that out? Because every day we have opportunities, every day we have moments in our lives, we will pass them off as being random. We will pass them off sometimes as maybe being lucky. We will use all kinds of terms to explain them away. And we forget, God, that sometimes you are sovereign, that you are always sovereign and that you are providential in your works. And so life is about opportunities. Opportunities. So, Father, for the moments that we have tried to compartmentalize our lives and say this is my spiritual life and these are my spiritual opportunities and these are my vocational, relational, or professional opportunities, that, God, we realize that that is so absolutely impossible for us as humans. But our spirituality flavors everything, Lord. So tomorrow at work or school or wherever I find myself, what I realize is that life is an opportunity. Help me, God, for the glory of your kingdom to make the absolute most of those moments. That I don't choose to wash my hands and say, my brother, my sister is not my responsibility. Even when they've done me wrong, even when I know that they may deny me, but yet that I choose to take a towel in a basin And I do the counterintuitive thing and I wash feet because we are each other's responsibilities. Thank you, Father, for speaking to us this morning. Open our hearts and our minds to your word.